0: In the Anapra redemptive community, Lakeland has been providing beans and rice to about 50 families in Anapra, Mexico. Anapra is a community just across the border uh, on the outskirts of Juarez. These are families who generally would only have one meal a day if Lakeland wasn't doing something. The other thing in the redemptive community has been working on is a library. This year we expanded the library, we doubled its size. While we were visiting, we got to see the kids running around and learning. We got to see the moms practicing their reading so that they can help their kids with their homework. Over the last six years, Lakeland has made sure that 50 families are fed monthly, that elderly people have blankets and heaters in their homes in the wintertime. We built a library. We filled it with thousands of books. We've built an expansion to the library where kids are getting tutoring every Saturday. It's unbelievable what God has done through Lakeland. Thank you. As a mom of kids K through four, I really am grateful for Lakeland's support and investment in them and their church experience. They need to hear uh, my voice and Tony's voice and our family's voice, but they need a periphery of villagers that also care about their well-being spiritually. They've asked really deep questions when they're not asking. I've actually seen my kids stop and pray. As a mom, that's all you can really hope for your child. I mean, I'm still learning that. I've got more years on this than they do, so. In the 2020 financial challenge, Lakeland wants to remodel and revamp the campfire space for children's K through four, much like they did in the youth space. I think that would be a great opportunity to invest in our future, our kids' future. I'm just grateful for Lakeland in my kids' life.
1: 2020, guys, it's about a dozen initiatives, some around the world, some here locally, some right on the property, continues to pay for our mortgage around here on the building, which has been such a blessing. Um, you know, I don't know about you guys, but when it comes to Anapra, um I'm, you know, I'm an old guy, so I look at the weather a lot, this is what old guys do, and so every time I pull up like the radar, you know, because old guys pull up radar, and because of that ANAPRA initiative, I look at the weather every time down down near uh, Juarez, and I think it's cold down there today, or it's raining, could be snowing, could be sleeting, and I'm thinking of people living in pallet houses and without heat and without food, like camping 365 days a year. You know, I'm like I'm glad we're doing something about it, and 2020 gets something like that, like that uh, gets that done. So. Our big danger, of course, in Christianity, especially in a country like ours where Christianity is well accepted, it's just a part of everything, we're really in danger of becoming domesticated. Domesticated Christians, domesticated church, you know, you know domesticated, right? It's like your old dog laying there asleep on the kitchen floor and his paws are twitching and his lips are curling and he's kind of gurgling and making soft little yelps and stuff. And he's dreaming about that time. When him and his ancestors were running as a pack, right? And they're chasing the prey, circling the prey, running and chomping, stretching out to that last ounce of energy. And he can feel himself running and biting, tracking down the prey. That one last bite, that one last leap. That's what he's dreaming about, laying there on the kitchen floor back before he was domesticated. You know, he's dreaming of fighting the other big dog, the alpha dog, right? For the women, fighting and winning. Yeah, that's all before domestication, long before the fences and the leashes and the backyard and that dog dish with the weird chunks of stuff in it that makes its own gravy. Undomesticated, wild. That's what he's laying there on the kitchen floor twitching about. All of his genes way back there telling him, You were once a wild dog. Domesticated Christians drive me nuts. First Samuel chapter 14. If you got your Bible, first Samuel chapter 14, pull it up on your phone or whatever. Right there with the weather. First Samuel chapter 14, we read about Saul and Jonathan. Israel's at war with the Philistines. And these Philistines, those are the same warrior tribe of people of Goliath, of David and Goliath, you know, those Philistines. And by the way, the story of Jonathan comes before David. David's still a shepherd boy when we talk about Saul and Jonathan. Jonathan, Saul's son, King Saul's son. Jonathan is decidedly not domesticated. He's in the fight. Jonathan's crazy. Jonathan's got a good, crazy kind of undomesticated faith in God. Now, Jonathan's father, King Saul, he looks like a king, but he's so domesticated. He's all prettied up, looking like a king. King Saul is instructed by God to go up and terrorize the Philistines who are invading For God tells Saul that if he just would trust him, he'll be victorious. But Saul does not trust God. He's domesticated. And instead, he chooses to wait. He prevaricates. He pauses. He second guesses. Saul gets scared. He doesn't trust God. For the Philistines are these really huge people. And Saul's scared. And besides, the Philistines have thousands of troops and horses and chariots. And the Hebrews only have 600 soldiers with Saul and Jonathan. And so King Saul is the perfect example of a domesticated faith. And Saul wants certainty. And Saul wants a guarantee that if he fights the Philistines, he's going to win. And God already told him that he just if he'd just fight... If he just get up off the kitchen floor and go. But he won't do it. He's waiting instead for the high priest to come and give him a blessing. But the high priest is late. So, no faith domesticated Saul does nothing. He sits down underneath the pomegranate tree. And if you ever want a symbol of what it means to, to pause and deliberate and do nothing... And be domesticated, it's a pomegranate tree. He's scared to trust God. Isn't this what happens when you have some success in life and things are going pretty well? Pretty soon, nobody wants to go backwards, right? Nobody wants to risk it all. Nobody wants to take a chance. Church doesn't want to chance, uh, chance anything. Christianity doesn't want to chance anything. You want to keep the ground you've gained, And the the risk-taking faith that got you here is not going to get you there. And what happens is you become domesticated. So if we do a quick study of Paul's spirituality, we find that Saul has no personal relationship with God. He's about this deep. He's really, really thin. God for Saul is just an add-on. He's a good luck charm. He's no different than witchcraft for, for Saul. Something to be conjured by priests and witches and vain rituals and incantations waiting for the high priest to come. Waiting for some sort of magic that's going to give him a victory over the Philistines and make everything go all right. He does this over and over and over throughout his reign as king. But he sure looks like a king. He's tall. He's good looking. He's actually a great general and military strategist. He just doesn't want to risk anything. Somewhere along the line, Saul got real domesticated. Probably, my estimation, scholars' estimations, because he lacked a relationship with God. He didn't know God, so he didn't trust God. Somewhere along the line, Saul got domesticated. And success will do that to you. You don't want to lose anything. Now, Saul's son, Jonathan is with his father under the pomegranate tree, and it's driving Jonathan crazy. One day, one day, Jonathan says, this is 1 Samuel chapter 14, one day, Jonathan says to the young man who's carrying his armor, his armor bearer, come, let's go over to the Philistines' outpost. Let's go over to the Philistines. But Jonathan does not tell his father, because that's not gonna do any good, Now, between Saul's army and the encampment of the Philistines, this is this narrow valley. They call it a valley. It's really just a gorge. I mean, it is a rock and hand and foot scrambling, root grabbing, just loose dirt. You can pull up pictures of it. It's still there. It's really, really, really steep. That's the valley between the Hebrews, between Jonathan and the Philistines. Come on, let's go over there. Well, from a military standpoint, this is a bad idea. You've got to scramble up a slope by hand and attack. Which, by the way, there's one of you and an armor bearer who's not armed. (laughs) And you're going to go against an army of thousands of horses and chariots. Sounds like a Bible story to me, doesn't it? As Jonathan and his young armor bearer are walking towards the enemy, Jonathan says again, Come, let's go over to the outpost of these uncircumcised fellows. Perhaps the Lord will act on our behalf. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. few." (laughs) Notice how exactly Jonathan thinks about God and not the situation. He's focused on God because unlike his father Saul, Jonathan has a relationship with God. He knows God. He's only focused on God. He's not focused on the Philistines or the fact that they're climbing up a slope or the fact that his armor bearer doesn't, isn't weaponized. And it's a bad idea to go against the army of the Philistines. He's just focused on God. Also notice that he is uncertain as he moves out. Jonathan does not know anything for certain. Unlike his father, it appears God did not tell him, go, and I'm going to give you a sure victory. Now, God told that to Saul. He hasn't told that to Jonathan at all. Jonathan's operating under perhaps. Perhaps God will give us a victory. Perhaps not. Now, if you're the armor bearer and you're tagging along on this thing, carrying all this stuff, and you're thinking like, wait, I thought we had a plan. The plan is perhaps, all right, already halfway there now, perhaps. He doesn't really know. He doesn't know. Jonathan's this wild, untamed, undomesticated faith person. Hey, you know what? Because faith moves out under uncertainty. Forget the idea that faith means certain scientific truth and knowledge. That's not what faith is. Faith always has uncertainty to it, otherwise it's not faith. Of course, faith is not at all the will to believe that things that you know perfectly well to be false. It's not that either. Faith is not a childish belief in magic. That's ignorance or even willful blindness. Faith is instead the realization that the tragic irrationalities of life must be counterbalanced by an equally irrational commitment to the essential goodness of being alive. Faith freaks out scientific certainty. Not because faith is willy nilly stupidity. No, faith moves out under uncertainty because it is faithful and having trust in something that is counterbalancing the craziness of it all. Besides, about 99% of the time, we're not asking some esoteric question like, is there a God? It's not that kind of a faith question. Rather, our non-faith thinking rational minds are manipulating us. They're maneuvering us. They're calculating. And they're conniving and scheming and forcing us to demand, avoid, ignore, and even punish ourselves for being stupid or ashamed or scared. And that's what keeps us from faith. That's what your rational mind's doing. Don't do anything. Just lay here on the kitchen floor and twitch. Sit underneath the pomegranate tree. Faith fights against our baggage, everyone. Faith says I am not someone who deserved to be divorced. I am not someone who should be hit or abused. Faith says I'm not someone who must perform for people like me or let everybody down in my life. Faith says I'm not a loser. Faith fights against the idea that I should just hide. I should just vaporize. I should just disappear. Let no one in. Put up a really thick skin, a big high wall, and let no one in. Faith doesn't have anything to do with that. It's total domestication. Trapped by your own thinking. And that sort of thinking kills people, and they never live. There's no life. Faith rarely asks, where is God? Instead, faith states, here is God right beside me. That's what faith does, even in the worst of times. And that brings us back to King Saul's son Jonathan. Come, let's go over to the outpost of those uncircumcised fellows. Perhaps the Lord will act on our behalf. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. <clears throat> Perhaps. Now, notice exactly how Jonathan thinks of God. And not the situation. And he doesn't know anything for certain. Unlike his father. It appears. God does not tell him. There's going to be victory. Just go up against him. And let's see what happens. Uncertainty. is normal for people. Who live by undomesticated faith. Like the author of the Hebrews states. Now faith. Hebrews chapter 12. Now faith is confidence in what we hope for, assurance about what we do not see. Nobody needs faith if you can see it. (laughs) That story, Jonathan gets to the top. He tells the armorer, he says, now look, if they say to us, come on up, that's a sign that we have the victory. If they say, stay there and we'll come down to you, Uh, armor bearers like what? Mm, Not good. Sure enough, it gets there, the Philistines say, come on up. It says in the scriptures that Jonathan was mowing them down like stalks of corn. Good day for the armor bearer, huh? When I was 24 years old, I could pack my entire life easily in the back of a pickup truck, which I did plenty of times. I had a few boxes of books, a bed with one set of sheets, a couple of boxes of clothes, a guitar, a towel, and a washcloth. That's what I had to my name. Life was simple. Easy, easy to be a person of faith. Easy to be undomesticated. I was living large and living loose. But more importantly... I could follow God's opportunities as they came to me. I could scramble up a bank any old time. All those moments when I was willing to go before I knew, that was faith. Before I could see the future with certainty, perhaps was the way I was operating all the time. That's when I grew close to God. When I was living on the edge, not knowing. When I could pack it all in the back of the pickup truck. This has been the pattern of my life, the pattern of just do something, kind of a leap-before-you-look sort of an idea. Even when I could not calculate what was coming next, I'd go ahead and try some things. Out of stupidity, maybe? Sure. Why not? At the risk of self-aggrandizement, so be careful here, when I was 17, I helped start and found a new Young Life Club for junior high students because I didn't know enough that we could fail. I didn't even think about it. I took off for KU after that with very little financial help from my folks. My dad had had a stroke and had no money and I thought for sure I'd have to quit college and just go to work. But I put my life into God's hands and then I got a letter telling me that because my dad had had a stroke and was now disabled that I was going to get a couple hundred dollars every month from Social Security. Well, that kind of kept me in some Wheaties and Cheerios. So I was good there. Then I moved into, when I got to KU in in Lawrence, I I moved into an old, run-down Episcopal campus ministry house that was trying to reboot itself, and I was the first schmuck to come in. I I paid $30 a month for rent, and let me tell you, it was about $29 too much. (laughs) This place was a pit, and we worked to remodel it. Once again, I did something before I had even sense to question it, which many of us do when we're when we're in our early 20s. And that's our great advantage then. After college, I moved into a youth house, which wasn't much better than the Episcopal house that I was living in in college. It was a dump as well. And those were lean years. Unemployment, by the way, was about 14%. And I was working a couple of different jobs. And I moved in this ministry house. I got a job in marketing promotions, doing advertising for a small startup company out on College Boulevard. Meanwhile, I was volunteering all of my other time back doing Young Life with high schoolers. Hanging out with students. Walking to the campus after hours. Walking up to a track meet or something like that. And many times I, I walked onto the high school campus all by myself praying, Father, I have no idea where you're going to lead me and who I'm going to talk to. I'm scared spitless. And I'd walk on. And I'd talk to high school students and build a relationship with them. And God used me. Common, ordinary business guy coming home, throwing off the suit and tie, and walking onto a high school campus back in the days when you could and making friends with people. Many of those people, or I'm not many, a handful of those people went on to do great ministry things. And then somewhere in there, after I graduated, was doing all this sort of thing, uh, I mean, I'm sorry, I went off to seminary, out to Pasadena, got my master's, got married in between all that and this sort of thing, you know, minor stuff, right? (laughs) And I thought for sure, like all my other friends in seminary, we're going to struggle now, and then we're going to go off, we're going to start big churches or join some big church, have some nice cushy, cool office and sit in there and kind of scratch our chin and say, oh, yeah, that's interesting. Not me. That's what my, all my other friends did. Not me. No, no. I, I, I was called by God to go start a church with nothing except for my wife working. And so we moved to here. We were thinking about going to Vegas, but Las Vegas, but uh, we didn't have anything there. At least back here, we knew two people in Grain Valley. And they had two friends. Our very first meeting, the other two people quit. There were four of us that started this church. Go start a church. And that left me, long story short, standing on some wobbly stage in a smelly, mouse-infested movie theater, like some beggar telling a bunch of other beggars just where the bread of life is. Wondering if any of them would be willing to throw in with me and my wife and try and change the world right here in Jackson County. Nowadays, as I get older and life is more stable, I fear domestication. I fear that I'd become that dog laying on the kitchen floor, twitching and thinking about the good old days. Lying there on the sofa drinking and some... Beverage and drifting off in a nap with my feet and hands twitching, my lips curling up, dreaming up some new idea. And to fight that, that's why we have these financial challenges, not just for me, for you. This is what puts us on edge. Think about it, folks. No reasonable church would buy a building for $4.1 million when you don't have nothing. But we did. Nobody in their right mind, and I'm talking secular people right now, really need to care about people down in Anapra. Or people on the other side of the planet in China. Or refugees, refugees who have no food and clothing or any of the other initiatives that we have going on no reasonable person would want to do that instead we'd be like the people i've run into in china which believe in fate and say like well sucks to be you but jesus calls us to something different to be wild not domesticated christians and do something These financial challenges deliberately tell us to make a choice for something more important than ourselves. The gospel came to you and me on its way to somebody else. It's not about us. It's about somebody else. Do you realize that Christianity, for all of it, gets criticized about these days? Do you realize what the Romans were doing in their time that Christianity came in and challenged when people or slaves were being thrown into a, uh, an arena just to watch them get ripped to pieces, that children were left outside to die because the baby was unwanted. That was common practice. That was just like putting your trash out on Monday morning. Christianity challenged this sort of thing. Christianity gave slaves actually a, a personality, that they were persons. Persons. monumental shifts happened because of Jesus that thing still goes on I, I tell you these days in culture I think we're fighting it I think we're fighting a drift towards secularism there could be a lot wrong with Christianity it's an easy target but secularism oh don't believe the lies that God is dead and, like Nietzsche said and we've all arrived if God is dead we're in trouble I don't trust it at all. Folks, these financial challenges is this moment where you say, it's my turn. It is my turn. It comes up, and if you don't want to be, you know, domesticated, then you say it's your turn. This is how it happens. It's that moment where you, like, get up and walk forward and you say, what am I doing? And somehow your feet are moving and your head's still sitting in the seat. This is the way faith moves out with uncertainty. This is the way it works. A while back, I was at a funeral, and an older gentleman, he was in his 90s, tripped and fell face first on the pavement. I mean, it was an atrocious moment. And I, and I, I saw it a split second out of the corner of my eye. I saw him trip and fall, which uh, gravity is extremely fast. And he fell, and he hit, smashing his face. And if you know me, I'm not the kind of person who runs over and helps people. But you know what went on inside my head? There was that voice. I don't even think it was my voice. It was my voice, then, you know, whatever, split personality or something. It said, your turn. That's literally what I heard. Your turn. Because I was like, from here to there, to the man. I'm not a medical person. And I ran over there and grabbed his face. Somebody said, what do we do? I said, go go get a towel. You know? And then the ambulance came and all that. But I still remember that moment where it says, your turn. This is your moment. Not somebody else's moment. Everybody else has their moment. But this is your moment to say, your turn. This is your time. Step up. Your turn. And my body was moving there. Well, my, my reasonable self was still standing there saying, uh-uh, like, oh, somebody else's turn. And I went over there. A week ago, uh, Friday, March 1st, several of us were at a fundraiser down at the New Madrid Theater for the Hope Center, and they had this classic auction uh, fundraiser guy up there, you know, and they had a red thermometer. All of this in my training on church fundraising says never use a red thermometer. There it was. They had a red thermometer up there for the Hope Center. Like, wow, okay, red thermometer, okay. This is probably going to not, this is not the way you fundraise. You don't say, you know, like some uh, KCPT sort of fundraiser, or if we just need a few more callers, and like everybody's like, change channels, you know, I thought, well, I don't know if this is going to work. And sure enough, they had a number, like a paddle, you know, like, except it wasn't a paddle. It was just a piece of paper with your number on it, like your number, 284. That's my number. Right. And, and they said, who's wanting to who wants to give $5,000? I'm like, keep the paddle down, you know, keep the number down $5,000. Well, people behind me held theirs up. I'm like, holy cow. Who wants to give 1000 Right on down the line, $500, 200 $100. All of a sudden, I'm stand, sitting there in my seat, and like, it goes up. I'm like, what are you doing? <laughs> my wife wasn't there. That's probably why I did it. <laughs> Your turn. That's the way it works. Faith moves out under uncertainty. You have no idea what's going to happen. You have a little bit of information. Helping people in Annapra who are cold? Sure. Getting women out of the sex trade in Kansas City? Okay, that makes sense. Were you doing that kids' room up there? You know, because we're all suburban missionaries, right? And if you were a missionary and you were called to suburbia, you know what people love the most in suburbia? They're kids. You better be doing something about kids. If God said, Lord, just show me how to reach these people, and then you didn't do anything about children, Like, we have a whole athletic field over there because of that. This whole building's designed because of that. That's what you do. So we remodel that room, try and make it as best as we can. So when, you know, maybe you bring your unchurched friend, who's pretty suspect about Christianity anyway, and they say, like, well, at least they put their best foot forward when it comes to the space around here. This place looks awesome. Not for us for the next person who's going to come through the door. That's what we're all in about. Our turn. That's what we're doing. So here we are. We're two years in to a three-year challenge, okay? One more year to go. One more year. And there's still a chance for you to think, my turn. You can jump in too. And Garrett's going to tell us all about it right now. Thank
0: you, Dan. All right. Well, there is an opportunity here before us. So if you would take out your pledge card that you got when you came in. So there's kind of three groups of folks on this. Uh, one is uh, you've already made a pledge, you know, and you intend to keep that. So all we'd like you to do with this is just uh, put your name on there and just where in that white box. Just, just write my turn. and That kind of just means still doing it. Still going to carry this through for the year, and when you come forward for the Lord's table, you can come drop that in the bowl, and that'll just be your sign of, you know, Lord, I'm still walking in faith with you on this. Another one would be, maybe you, you did a pledge, but it did not go well. You're here at two years, and it just didn't turn out the way you thought it was going to turn out. This morning is an opportunity to think, well, what could I do? What could I do in the year? Clearly, things didn't go well for me on, on what I wrote down two years ago. But what could I do in this final year to step out in faith? And then you'll write that in there. Or some of you are just, uh, maybe you have hesitated in the past, weren't sure about all this. Or you're just new enough to the church. But when we celebrate this next year, you definitely want to be a part of it. So I'm talking to those last two groups here as we turn the card over. So we're talking twelve months until the end of twenty twenty. What could be done in twelve months? Well, if you pledged three hundred dollars a week, that'd be thirteen hundred a month. Just that one year pledge would pay for the lighting and video system that's going in in that kids' own room that will uh, minister to kids for years and years to come. If you did a hundred and fifty a week, that'd be six hundred and fifty a month. Uh, that gift would complete our uh, the rest of our gift to the Prodeo Youth Center right here in Lee Summit to reach at risk kids they 're going to be going to summer camp with us when we do lakeland camp this summer and and all sorts of other tutoring and mental health care and, and just that one pledge from one person would provide that if you did seventy five dollars a week three hundred and twenty five a month that would complete our gift to our river ministry which is investing in the next generation of the church the next group of leaders in the church folks who are in their 20s right now make sure they get into dumpy ministry houses and do something for the lord while time is ripe for that right $35 a week that would be $150 a month if we had five families pledge at that level this morning uh That would uh, provide the rest of our gift to the Global Orphan Project, which really needs some help right now because of all the unrest and upheaval in Haiti, uh, taking care of orphans who are caught in the middle of all of that. Every gift counts. $15 a week for the next year. If we had two families pledge at that level, that would provide... Oh no, just, just that one person would provide two months worth of beans and rice in Annapur, Mexico for 40 families. If you gave $15 a week, you would feed 40 families in Annapur, Mexico. So every gift matters and everything done in faith uh, makes a big, big difference because God multiplies it and he takes it and his glory is shown. So think about what you want to do there. Make sure you put your name on, on the card so we know who did that. And then the white boxes for your pledge. Or you just write, still my turn. You know, if you're keeping your original pledge. And then as we come forward for the Lord's table, you can place it. Just step over the side here and and place it in the 2020 bowl here. Amen.